is this is where uh, this new left murdered the old left and completely unmoored it from what it used to do. Uh, and it, it, it's it's kind of historical grounding. And it's, a, it's, I think, a fascinating story that needs to be told. But I think that this is crucial to understanding why we see this kind of woke monstrosity that's so paternalistic and so saccharine, but also just so corporate, just so. Like, everything they write, have you noticed if you read their theory and then, you know, you read their, their academic work, right? And then you read it like an activist statement. And then you read a mission statement from a multinational corporation. It's like, it's like reading the idea. It's identical script. Like you, you preach like brothers of all races unite for, you know, and, and then you get fucking shot in your bed, by, you know, by the American government, right? Like Fred Hampton. And you, you like preach all this shit about white supremacy. You get scholarships, you know, and like corporations agree with you. And you're like, Oh, that's so weird. James Lindsay, Wikipedia describes you uh, as a um, cultural critic, mathematician, and conspiracy theorist. <laughs> what do you think of that characterization? No, I think it's pretty funny. It's pretty awesome, actually. I got introduced to, actually, I was at a conference. I'm trying to think back to the story. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, a month ago, or something like this. And I met a guy, he's a, a physician. He is familiar with me, but he, not terribly familiar with me. So we're sitting talking across a table and he types my name into Google and up comes my Wikipedia and he reads the little blurb that it gives. And there it is me. And it, he says, wow, there are four pieces of slander in your little tiny Wikipedia blurb on Google, which means you must be an absolute rock star. So that's how I feel about this. Um, uh, well, I, I you know it worries me because sometimes I meet people in person that I really like and I'm like, you know, oh, th this person is really great. And then I think, don't Google me because <laughs> you're going to hate me. Um, but I think um, we come from completely. Well, actually, I don't think we come from completely different backgrounds, but I think there are things that we would probably agree on and disagree on. But we have a shared, I think, enemy. And that is wokeness <laughs> and um, the ideology of social justice. Now, I come at this from a left-wing position, but from what I understand, you also initially came at it from a left-wing position. Um, do I have that right? And can you give me a sense of how you came to be such a critic of social justice movements, so-called social justice movements? Yeah, I think all of that's correct. So what you described is saying that we have some things we disagree on and some things we agree on and that we have a common enemy called wokeness, I think just means that we're people, um, to put it kind of simple and, and mildly. But uh, I did, I was a denizen of the left. Um, I don't consider myself a, a right wing person now, but the internet has, has concluded that I am. I consider myself to be as independent as I can possibly be. Uh, a lot of people understand because i criticize this social justice wokeness whatever we want to call it movement that i um am certainly not a leftist um but i am lately in a lot of trouble with the right with the reactionary right in particular who are using very manipulative and, and vicious tactics against me as well because it turns out that i stand for things like individual liberty i stand for um you know the freedom for us to pursue our lives unhindered, especially by governments or even large corporate manipulation. 
I'm pretty much just against abuse and manipulation. And um, that lands me in this kind of a weird place. I may skew slightly politically conservative given the times right now, but economically it's kind of up in the air and socially i'm certainly not a social conservative social conservatives annoy me and so they in fact annoy me a lot so i'm kind of like this weird in this weird position but seeing that i came originally out of academia and i started to kind of traffic in in online discussions in a position on the left uh and I spent a lot of time active in what was called at the time the new atheism movement, which was which skewed pretty strongly left. Uh, my original criticisms really came down from a left wing position uh, in cynical theories, which is my most uh, famous book that I wrote with a woman, Helen Pluckrose, who is, by the way, in London and a leftist, uh, which we wrote from a left liberal position. Um, in cynical theories that we actually argued that we're against the so-called social justice movement, which we put with a capital S and a capital J because we are for the idea of social justice, which would, you know, in general social progress. I'm a little warier around the terms progress and justice now because they're so deeply kind of co-opted. But um, what brought me to be a critic of that movement in general is two things. One was having been directly exposed to it and the other was taking the time to read it. And by reading their own ideas and their own words and comparing that with what I was seeing put into practice from actual people who espouse those views, I decided that it was a disaster in the making that I got in a lot of trouble in 2018. Um, I read quite a bit and we were doing this thing. and I got some feedback uh, from peer review journal articles at Hypatia, which is the Journal of Feminist Philosophy, very famous, obviously very left wing. And I read the peer review commentary that we got back on a paper we had submitted there. And um, they were very warm to the paper, but they convinced me that the logic of woke contains, this is how I phrased it. And I got in a lot of trouble for this because I got accused of being insane. It contains, th this is a very modest statement, actually. It, it, it contains the seed of a genocide. It's logic allowed to flourish and bloom, watered, nourished, and allowed to grow to fruit, which or a lot of things that may or may not ever happen um, in my estimation ends in genocide because of its distaste for compassion. It's uh, very kind of friend enemy. Uh, you're with us or you're absolutely against us in an impediment. It's tribal, almost folkish identity politics, which gets futile. Uh, and uh, in fact, I said tribal, it gets extraordinarily tribal in the kind of social identity sense, and it stokes those fires of division and conflict. It ends nowhere good. And so I, at that point in 2018, I went from being kind of a casual student and critic to a, I literally quit my job and became a full-time student and critic of this movement, uh, given those concerns. Yeah, I, I share this horror, actually. I was on a li listserv. Um, I am on a listserv um, for uh, Indigenous psychology because I'm Indigenous myself and I um, write critically of uh, social policy in Canada aimed at Indigenous people, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. Probably don't need to belabor the point anymore. Um, but it annoys me because through this like language of caring and so on, it's really belittling and uh ironically really racist and attempting so hard to be anti-racist they wind up repeating all these old racist tropes and if you see through all the kindness you see the old ideas coming up again so this really annoys me so i'm on this listserv 
And uh, it got over time over the years, it's got more and more disturbing um, where they are talking about white people, this white people that and I just thought, you know, I could take this, I could just, you know, uh, copy and paste this email thread and hit, you know, find and replace on word and put Jews. <laughs> and this would be a horrific <laughs> conversation but because it's it's um, aimed at so-called white people, whatever that means. Uh, it's, uh, it's just fine. So is scapegoating a racial group wrong just when the Nazis did it? <laughs> or is it just wrong generally? I, I'm pretty convinced that it's just a bad way of understanding social problems, that if you scapegoat a particular group, it doesn't lead you to good places. And I don't mean, I, I agree with you, it doesn't mean like literally we're going to see like a genocide or something that's crazy. But if you're taking a step down that path, you should probably turn around. You've gone the wrong direction. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And I wondered also about, um, I think, you know, obviously the famous um, grievance studies hoax, uh, which is how I first obviously learned about you and probably a lot of people did too. Um, there's a few things I want to ask you about that. One is how the hell did you write so many papers so fast? And the, the other thing is there was one of the one of the papers um, a, in a feminist journal had rewritten, apparently, the media says, now correct me if I'm wrong, had re rewritten parts of Mein Kampf. And I found that to be very interesting because it reminded me of exactly what I said. You could go into this listserv and control F white people and put Jews. <laughs> and I wonder, is, was that your line of thinking there? Or was that is it is it true that that was a, a rewrite of Mein Kampf? Okay, so yes, that is all true, and the the, the is the grievance studies affair is why I was submitting an academic paper to Hypatia in the first place. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of my time writing feminist theory. The question about how do <laughs> we write so many papers so quickly um, is that it turns out to be really easy to write them, partly because we were making it up. And partly because um, it's very formulaic, you just kind of have to figure out some interesting and kind of unique angle on saying exactly the same thing and kind of exactly the same pattern. And then you just sort of massage it until it works. And so in a sense, you know, I, I, we did write very distinct papers. I mean, 20 of them, as a matter of fact, but um, they're not different really at their hearts, not very different. Uh, it's it's they're, they're extraordinarily formulaic. You start out with an introduction and you say, here's some kind of a problem that heretofore the hegemonic narratives have prevented us from being able to see. You phrase that however you want. Then you say, here's what the literature already says about that. Here's how it's been problematized. And here's a problematic that people haven't identified. And here's a completely crazy solution that usually involves... <laughs> grabbing more power or just some kind of, you know, the kind of typical, it sounds like pablum, but it's not, but we're going to stick more power or, or we're going to stick more diversity, more inclusion. We must demand more of this, demand more of that in the university and policing and schools, whatever it happens to be. And it's actually quite formulaic. So it turns out to be the hardest part is thinking up the kind of creative goofy angle. Cause especially when we were trying to make them funny, um, all the rest is literally just kind of like putting Lego blocks together. It's just extraordinarily simple. Um, and so you can, I, I write quickly as it is. So we could draft these things and then edit them and send them off very quickly. Um, one of them, in fact, the hardest ones that we did, we, and I say plural, uh, that we did were rewrites from Mein Kampf. And one of those was accepted by a feminist social work journal. And one of them was not. 
the one that was not was exactly what you just described. We took selected passages where Adolf Hitler is particularly um, salty about Jewish people in Mein Kampf, not any like continuous passage, just a paragraph from chapter two, a paragraph from chapter three, a section from chapter eight, you know, or whatever. I'm just picking numbers out of the air, by the way. So this is just, you know, to give you a sense of how we did it. And then we did control F Jews, white people, and then just started making it all work. And it turned out that that one was very difficult because it was very narrative driven and, and kind of a I don't know if you've read Mein Kampf, but I had the pleasure uh, a few times now, and it's a uh, rambling narrative account. It's it's a gigantic autoethnography in the modern parlance. <laughs> his frustrations with with uh, Vienna and Austria, and then eventually Marxists, and then later Jewish. He decides all the Marxists are Jewish, and haha, now he's got the formula. And then he's creating this. So the one that did get accepted was not that. What we actually did was the, the 12th chapter of Mein Kampf. He's laid out all the problems. Chapter 11 is very famously um, the weird race occultism chapter where he blames everything on the Jews. If you actually do kind of a, a you know, a search or whatever, and it's like the different chapters, how many times does Hitler mention the Jews in Mein Kampf? It's like, you know, eight, 18, 24, you know, through the different six, through the different chapters. Then you get to chapter 11 and it's like 380. It's just all he talks about. And then chapter 12, it's like 10 or 12 times. It's like it really comes. There's that one chapter that's really, this is the culmination of what's really wrong in the world. And it's this weird Helena Blavatsky theosophical race occultism turned into anti-Semitism and other forms of racial hate. And then chapter 12 is, we need a movement. What do we do about this problem? And so we took chapter 12, and because it's organizing a movement, and we rewrote it and said that this is in terms of, we took everywhere he says our movement and replaced it with intersectional feminism. And then we turned it into an offensive against something, this was Helen Pluckers' idea, an offensive against what feminists refer to as choice feminism. Or sometimes there's a there's a spinoff from that that's neoliberal feminism. And so choice feminism is the idea that women being free and independent to make their own choices and live their lives according to those choices is an expression of feminism as opposed to some kind of, you know, class solidarity. And so choice feminism is a huge target in that literature. So we set that up as the enemy and saying we need intersectional solidarity as the solution and just copied Hitler. And neoliberal feminism is the kind of marketing of that. So you have the idea of the, you know, beautiful model driving a race car or whatever, you know, and so this is it. And this is feminist empowerment and but they're selling products using it. So it's the idea of using the image of the free independent woman to sell products is, is just neoliberal feminism. And um, we took those two things and said that they are the exact trap that maintains hegemonic structures. And as opposed to those, we need an intersectional solidarity. And we titled the uh, paper, uh, Our Struggle is My Struggle. And of course, Mein Kampf in German means my struggle. Um, and it was accepted by a feminist social work journal called Aphelia uh, that seemed to like, we took, Hitler had, I think 13, it's maybe it's 14, I'd have to look back. It's not like I traffic in the book all the time, uh, points for how to organize his movement and we took a few of those out because it was just too long. And then we condensed a few of them and, you know, took two or three of them and smashed them into one, but made an eight point plan for transforming uh, feminism away from neoliberal and choice feminism, Western feminism, and turning it into something that would be very um, solidarity and overthrow society based 
uh, through intersectionality. And it, it w we didn't think it was going to succeed, but it turns out that it did succeed. So that was actually true. Um, and like I said, that one actually out of the 20 probably took us the most work. It was very hard to take his angry rambling screed and turn it into something that resembles an academic paper. We also pointed out more technically that Hitler writing in this would be in, I guess, the late 1920s for Mein Kampf was very deeply entrenched in the modernist tradition in Europe. And obviously a lot of the woke stuff is very postmodernist. So they have this kind of fundamental worldview uh, disagreement that we had to massage our way through so that it would be acceptable to a uh, more postmodern, uh, you know, journal editor audience while maintaining the kind of, you know, fist pounding modernism of, of Hitler's Nazi machine. Uh, so that was a challenge, but it did. This is true. Um, it has been changed enough to where it's reasonable that it would fool somebody. The ethos, a lot of the phrasing, um, entire large sections are are extraordinarily reminiscent of the original. But it had to be changed quite a lot to make room for theory, to change the content, and to actually avoid uh, automatic plagiarism detectors. If the wording was identical, it would just find that and we'd get dis right. you know, disqualified immediately. And, and um, people have said, of course, that it, it didn't really um, follow Mein Kampf, that perhaps it took some paragraphs and so on. I made a video a while back called Marx, Fascist, or CEO. <laughs> and it was like a little game show. Round one, who lauded that we are finally placing authenticity over consumerism? If you said Marx, you would be an idiot. Marx doesn't say that kind of thing. Go read a book. No, this is a CEO, obviously. Round two. Who was it that said, modern civilization has pushed man onward? It has generated in him the need for an increasingly greater number of things. It has made him more and more insufficient in himself and powerless. If you said Marx, get the out, just go. It's obviously a fascist. You suck at this game. It's Julius Evola. Get out of here. Just to show the degree of distance that the contemporary left has traveled from anything like Marx's ideas. So Marx is talking about freedom of the press and how he feels the need for freedom in his soul and all this kind of stuff. And then you've got contemporary uh, CEOs talking about how you don't need money to be happy. <laughs> and uh, and uh, fascists talking about the masses being stupid and, re and, and led by demagogues, fascists saying this, mm -hmm. uh, and um, the democracy being an illusion. And do you know how many people were fooled by that? You know, how many people thought that the CEOs... Like everybody. Yeah, and, and were quite surprised to learn um, that Marx would would not have been in agreement, surprise, surprise, no. with, with fascists who were like quite vehemently uh, anti, anti-Marxist and like sort of a bit like, um, well, obviously like uh, Hitler having this kind of like Tourette syndrome for Jews and Marxists and then mangling all of this together into some conspiracy. Although you have been criticized for doing just that. that. That's what people say about you, that you that your sort of hate, not hatred, but your um, distaste for what you call cultural Marxism. Although on your on your website, you explain that it would be more like cultural Marxianism, but it, mm -hmm. it doesn't have a ring to it. Um, but people have said that this is actually you're being anti-Semitic um, and that you're propagating anti-Semitic conspiracies. What do you respond to things like that? 
I mean, that's, I think, fairly ridiculous. Uh, what animated the characters in history who have been identified as cultural Marxists. So we're talking about George Lukács. I don't actually know what Lukács' religious affiliation was. He's a Hungarian, um, so I can't, I can't comment on that. Antonio Gramsci, I do not think Gramsci was Jewish, but he may have been. But then the members of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, Walter Benjamin, um, Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, they were Jewish. Uh, but what motivated these characters was Marxism, not being Jewish. And as a matter of fact, you can read quite a large number of Jewish people having commented on these same people and saying that what they're reading is not reflective of Judaism whatsoever. And um, I hear frequently from conservative Jews and, and rabbis in particular uh, with a lot of gratitude for the, the work that I'm doing. And so I feel like this is a straw man that has been erected to protect, whether we want to call this cultural Marxism or Western Marxism or um, sometimes critical Marxism from scrutiny by hiding it behind this label. I certainly have literally no animosity toward Jews. I get in arguments. So another group of people on the internet who, and some in real life, who literally hate me are the actual anti-Semites because they're very upset with me that I will not, as they phrase it, take the J pill. I will not blame everything on the Jews. I do not actually think Jews or Jewish faith is the problem. I think that there's a underlying current of kind of uh, angry and, and perverse mysticism that can latch onto anything. And some people are Jewish in their expression of their mysticism. Some people are Christian. There are Christian um, mystics like Hegel, for example, was a Christian mystic. He was a Lutheran. He wasn't Jewish at all. But where did Marx adopt most of his program from in terms of the dialectical movement of history and so on from Hegel, who he said he stood on his head. But this was explicitly a Christian mysticist project that Marx turned, in, on his, as he says, upside down or stood on its head. He took the idealism and said it's not about idealism, it's about materialism. And it's not mm -hmm. about transforming the ideas and letting the ideas transform society. It's about transforming society and having that change ideas. Uh, so he literally turned Hegel upside down. But that, Marx, by the way, also was a Lutheran, um, or at least his father was. Marx was actually an atheist. He literally decried God openly and angrily, starting like at 19 years old, very, very angry mm -hmm. uh, about that. And so it's a fairly um, superficial and ridiculous accusation that I'm doing something anti-Semitic by, say, taking Herbert Marcuse, who happened to be one of these Marxist people who's also Jewish, and reading his work out loud in, like, say, for example, Repressive Tolerance, and saying that this is a blueprint for, for totalitarianism, and the, then the reply is, you're attacking Jews. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of beyond ridiculous to insinuate this. Now, when we get to when we get to like Marcus, by the way, I critique the Frankfurt School constantly, and I never once. Yeah, I, 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 will, I will say that I, I am an avowed Marxist, and I cannot stand most of the Frankfurt School, uh, and I critique them constantly, and yet, and I never get this idea. And I think also with the um, the idea of like you, where you become sort of politically homeless, and it's become a bit of a cliche at the moment. But you know, people go, oh well, you must be right wing then. But of course, like, you know, scratch, it used to be scratch below the surface of a so-called conservative and you just have a classical liberal, right? So you think yeah. like, oh, if, you, if you're not critical and you don't think these things through, you go, well, I, I can't stand what passes for the contemporary left. I must be right wing. And you go right. to the right wing and you go, oh, shit, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like Carl Schmidt across the political spectrum. 
that's you right. Know, where are you going to put yourself? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Carl Schmidt is actually in a rising trajectory on the right right now, and it's really concerning. And for people who don't know who Carl, I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, since you just throw it out like that. But Carl Schmidt was a, was the crown jurist of the Third Reich, and his kind of two. He was actually a huge opportunist. He saw the rise of the Nazis. He saw the communists moving on Germany in the 1920s, and he went to Hindenburg and he begged him to transform Germany's constitutional structure and said, let's turn this around. It will create this concept called an unbound executive. And we can hammer down using our own iron fist. We can hammer down both of these movements and prevent Germany from going either way, Marxist or fascist. And um, that didn't happen. And uh, so as soon as Hitler takes the chancellorship, like literally within weeks, Carl Schmidt jumps ship, joins ranks, with the Nazis, becomes the Nazis crown jurist. And he starts writing in particular about the so-called friend-enemy distinction, which is a very polarizing uh, concept. And this is kind of like one of the four or five philosophers, you know, that if we can call them that, that the reactionary right turns to, while mean at the same time turning to look at the Frankfurt School and say, look at them, they were all Jewish. What does that tell you? Which is ridiculous because it's more of a coincidence than anything. But when we when we actually look at woke, right, which is the primary target for the day, right? When we actually look at woke, woke is actually extraordinarily Maoist, not classically Marxist whatsoever. And of course, Mao being a bumpkin from Hunan province or wherever he was from in China, I forgot which province, but I think it's Hunan. I might be wrong. He was literally a country bumpkin that ended up, you know, becoming very useful to the CCP infiltrating the Guomindang in the 20s and 30s, doing all kinds of things, eventually leading the military revolution in 49 uh, to victory of 46 to 49, and then becoming the, you know, this great guy, uh, great figure of the cultural revolution, 66 through 76, when he finally dies and does the best thing he ever achieved. Um, Mao turns out not to be a very likely candidate for Jewishness. And the whole model that we're dealing with with woke, which is what we're really criticizing here, is Maoist. Marcuse read Mao. He was working for the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. He certainly would have had access to the writings of Mao at the time. He was central to a lot of the development of the American intelligence agency. So he knew what Mao was doing. The Long March to the Institutions was named after what Mao Zedong's revolution was doing, which they thought was fundamentally different than what happened in the Soviet Union. And of course, whatever um, Marcuse may have thought of Lenin, and I'm not entirely sure, he was not a fan of Stalin. He was certainly no fan of Stalin's. And so Stalin was no fan of Mao's. He didn't trust him. And so we see Marcuse turning and paying attention to Mao and devising a lot of his uh, cultural transformation programs, the shift out of the working class and into the identity politics, being modeled after the way that Mao unleashes cultural revolution, the shift to a youth rebellion, just like the cultural uh, revolution in China depended on from the Red Guard and so on. And so the idea that this is a Jewish plot that somehow has come down through a arch Chinese country bumpkin who happened to become one of the greatest uh, dictators in history um, is a bit of a stretch. And to say that anybody who criticizes this is, you know, somehow engaging in at least thinly veiled anti-Semitism is a preposterous deflection from the, the belief that those ideas, 
Marcuse's, Adorno's, Horkheimer's in particular, but then later Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, famously Jewish, black woman, um, that these people are to be exempted from criticism because those ideas should be exempted from criticism because authors like Horkheimer and, and Marcuse happen to be of Jewish family or parentage, or maybe they had some Jewish beliefs. Maybe they were into, you know, some kind of occultism in that regard. I don't know, but occultism is occultism, regardless of whether or not it cobbles onto Christian mysticism or Jewish mysticism or uh, Islamic or Taoist or Buddhist or whatever else. And so they're off in a totally different vein. And so I spend, I waste an inordinate amount of time rebuffing people who are just desperate for me to take this J-pill while meanwhile getting attacked like I'm somehow this raging anti-Semite. Like my day is literally getting called an anti-Semite while I tell real anti-Semites that I'm not interested in the garbage they're selling. And here's like a 2000 word explanation for why I spend a lot of my days every day or every week that way. I suppose the idea is that um, that if by saying that the causal force behind a lot of these bad trends is Marxism, it winds up sounding like the the fascists who laid the blame at the feet of of communists. You know, the first people that they that they hated the most were communists, right? Um, that's the famous line in that poem. First, they came for the communists. Um, and then they kind of, as I said, mangled this around to make sense to be like a Jewish communist conspiracy where they were both rich and also um, uh, trying to overthrow capitalism, all this nonsense. Um, so I guess the, the idea is, and then of course, what you talk about secularism, that it's not about a Jewish religion. Um, I think part of the whole anti-Semitic Jewish conspiracy was that because they were cosmopolitans and um, placeless and homeless and and in that way kind of had no allegiance to anything, that was what made them suspect. Um, so it wasn't necessarily about their religious affiliation so much, um, but their cosmopolitanism and also their modernism too, that they kind of, you know, Hitler had a modernist side, obviously, but he also had a very strongly romantic side. Oh, yes. um, and that, it's all it's all romantic. That's yeah, right. yeah. So and he and he had the, almost you know there there was like Italian fascist modernism, but as soon as Nazism took power, they kind of did away with that. And yeah, it was fascism all like, is anti enlightenment. This is so absolutely. it's anti modern thought. It, it, I, I'm so glad you said that. It is a re, it is a romantic as opposed to a religious reaction to modernity. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, in fact, I, I I I wish I would have screenshotted this because I remember this one when I said that um, land uh, or no radical decolonization is woke fascism. Um, there was this woman who was coming at me calling you're a fascist, and her her background on Twitter was literally something like um, the Enlightenment was a mistake. <laughs> it was like just put 1789 is abolished. Just fucking own it, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I guess, but that's kind of the idea that if you kind of lay the blame at the feet of Marxism, um, then it sounds like this kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Well, I, I understand why people think that, but I, I mean, I think they're making the exact same mistake Hitler made. I think it's in the third chapter of Mein Kampf, where he says he argued with the Marxists and he argued with the Marxists and he screamed at him until his voice went hoarse. And he'd say sometimes he would lose the argument and he'd get really mad. And sometimes he'd win the argument. And then the next day they would act like they didn't even lose the argument and like nothing ever happened. And they just reassert their positions again, like nothing. And it made him, I mean, it's really an interesting case study, honestly, to read how radicalized he gets 
trying to argue with German Marxists. And it's, you know, it's kind of funny. It's quaint because he's like, I'd yell at him and I'd go drink my bottle of milk and I'd come back and yell at them some more. You know, it's like this weird thing to read. And then he has this actual paragraph where he's like, and then I realized that they're all Jews. And so then he flips, which is, of course, not accurate. But that's where he ends up flipping. And then his whole race occultism, which he got out of the kind of theosophical movement, which was happening in parallel, he that's where he got the swastika, by the way, that he imported, as yeah. people say, he imported it from India, but he didn't import it directly from India. He imported it from, from India via uh, Helena Blavatsky, who founded the Theosophical Society in 1875 in London. And these ideas kind of did this whole like, early new age wave in Europe and the eugenics crowd really got caught up in it. And they, there you go. That's where Hitler, Hitler sticks us in. And then Jews for all the reasons that you said, and then also they do have one particular allegiance. They believe that they are uniquely the children of God and their allegiance is to God and to God alone set them up. It's like, it's hard to convert them. It's hard to get them to, they will not denounce that in order to join um, some political movement, for example, they have they have a higher priority. And this frustrates people who want them to join a particular political order to the point where eventually people start flipping out. You add in the fact that their practices, if you're in a broadly Christian or even secular modern context, the religious practices appear quite alien. They wouldn't appear alien, say, in Jerusalem, but they do appear alien in, say, 18 some odd or 19 some odd Germany, which is heavily Lutheran and Protestant, primarily with some Catholic uh, influence and very little else. They do look alien in the broadly secular and overwhelmingly Christian United States. And so when you see people, you know, kind of acting strangely, it's easy to start thinking that they have all these kind of, strangely to what you believe is, is, is kind of the cultural standard who then are completely committed to that. And then, you know, it's easy to start to put things together that, that they're somehow acting, you know, in, in a conspiratorial way, especially they often do kind of in a, they do help each other like a big extended religious family in many cases. And so it gets very easy to start attaching erroneous beliefs. And then, like I said, I keep coming back to this because I think it's so important. It's where that romanticism part comes in. Cause if we look at the reactions to the enlightenment, if, if I might, I think, that the, the religious reaction is clearly based on some kind of desire to go back to a more pre-modern faith and the mm -hmm. romantic reaction, what is it looking for? Well, it wants to react back to magic. And mm -hmm. so when you have, when life was enchanted to go back right. to that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So they're looking for this kind of magic. And when you have esotericists who practice, whether it's in the Jewish tradition through Kabbalah or whatever else, or you have Christian mystics and or you have Oprah Winfrey or whatever, you know, with their new age stuff. When you have these characters seeking this kind of romantic uh, drawback to a, to enchanted magic world, um, but you're not familiar, say, with with Orthodox Jewish practice, and some of them happen to be Jewish and it looks like they're doing wizardry, you're like, oh, that's what Jews do, all of them, which is incorrect. Mm -hmm. Or if you see them, you know, some of whom some some Jews are Marxists and you see them do that and then you say, oh, that's what Jews do. This is a uh, what they call a hasty generalization. And so the accusation is a very, very low resolution. In fact, it's so resolution. It's like pointed the wrong direction. 
um, analysis of what's actually going on. I know where the criticism comes from, but it's it's a it's a ridiculous def deflectionary tactic that doesn't really um, it doesn't merit uh, even the amount of time we've given it, frankly. But it doesn't it it, it it doesn't merit taking seriously a claim that we shouldn't examine the ideas, like the idea that we wouldn't read One Dimensional Man and criticize it because something something Jewish. This is preposterous. Yeah, and and also it kind of ironically feeds into that same conspiracy theory, like that it is, there is, you don't want to do it because there is something there. And if I open Pandora's right. box. Well, yeah, I'm, right. Yeah, right. There's this idea of, um, well, that I have in my my forthcoming book, not to plug it, but uh, where I say in the absence of political progress, movements turn mystical. Um, and it, it really, that that quote that you gave from, from Mein Kampf is exactly that, right? So he gets really frustrated at being unable to, pro in his terms anyway, progress the conversation. And he turns toward the sort of mysticism. Um, or it, this happened with um, socialists. So like the Owenite sect, for instance, um, lost the support of the working class and they turned mystic, like the, a lot of the table dancing and so on. This was from a previously socialist sect. And Marx talks about this in Capital Volume One. He says uh, in a footnote, one might recall that the, that, the, that the tables began to dance at the moment when the rest of the world seemed to stand still. So the rest of the world stands still and the tables begin to dance like there seems to be no political progress. And so we start to search for this kind of fulfillment of progress in 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 imagination. We turn. No, to I imagination think that's right. I think that's a very human tendency. You know, you get frustrated. Like if you knew how like if I said like, um, you know, go to the kitchen and get let's get some water or whatever. And you turn on the tap. You're not going to like do some kind of a water dance to make the water come out of the tap until the water doesn't come out of the tap. And then you're going to start like slapping it and doing all kinds of like little things. Bargaining with God. Yeah. Or then you maybe start praying or you start, you know, there's all kinds of like silly things that you might do thinking that it might. And the, the more frustrated your attempts get kind of the more desperate and kind of even more whimsical or magical your approach might be. And maybe the faucet's not the best example, but I don't think it's hard to imagine. I mean, a lot of people would call it plumber, but um it's not hard to imagine this idea that, you know, you're going to start. I mean, think about the faucet's not as nearly as good an example as is your laptop. When your laptop doesn't work, you might shake it. You might blow on it. You might do all kinds of things that have nothing to do with making it work. You might talk to it nicely. You might ask the universe to make it restart and work correctly. You do, you know, all kinds. Of, so I think that I think that this is a general principle. I think that's a, a fair observation that when, when you have this frustrated um, ambition to progress, that that's where uh, the desire to get magic involved and kind of almost retreat to a childish understanding where things do kind of happen magically uh, for you because somebody else is yeah. doing them. I mean, it's it's it can turn magical, but I think it also can turn scientistic where yes, uh, if we have like a strong kind of belief in, in, in science and in progress in society, then that can be a deterrent from turning too mystical. But then you imbue science with a kind of mystical character. So science becomes quasi-religious. And I find, you know, the example that you gave from Mein Kampf is very reminiscent of a proto-fascist, um, Vilfredo Pareto who um, anybody who's listened to me talk knows that I'm obsessed with Alfredo Pareto. I think everybody should read fascist texts and read proto-fascist texts 
if if only to kind of stop yourself from accidentally repeating some fucking stupid thing like uh because you you reject you think oh modern society it's so bad for me it's so bad for my soul and then you start saying all this dumb stuff about just rejecting the present and wanting to go back right you, you think well the where we're going is somewhere real bad so surely we have to go back right you just reject the present and then you wind up saying reactionary things anyway so i really like Wilfredo Pareto for this I, I hate him but i mean i, I like it for being no, such no, a no, good I example understand. where he had this exact same narrative where he was trying to reason with socialists and they just would not respond to him uh, and that he just couldn't convince them and so this becomes he 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 becomes like a frustrated liberal and mm -hmm. i think a lot of people don't realize that the roots of fascism can be in this frustrated liberalism um, uh, and, and Pareto takes this turn where he leaves liberalism behind and gives up on the idea of democracy as just this illusion. And he throws himself into so-called sociology and he becomes like a sociologist. But he's, what, what, what he means by sociology is something like psychology. And it's this whole story about how human beings truly are not rational and that everything that we do is simply a justification and a derivation and all these sorts of things that, that happens post facto. Um, and then, you know, famously, you know, people, unless you were like literally strung up during World War II, people will say, oh, but were they really fascist? I mean, he died before there was a chance to really be a fascist, but he famously wrote a supportive letter to Mussolini um, saying like, well, you, you know, you have the strength to kind of crush these people where other people would pussyfooting around and obviously paraphrasing. Um, but I think what's interesting about this is that the legacy that we have taken from fascism, ironically, is exactly that. You know, this this has traveled onto the so-called left, that democracy is an illusion, that, you know, they instead of like seeing the working class as as being the hope for the future, they started to see just by virtue of like being consigned to the realm of economics and and like solving problems as a matter of course in your existence, which is Mark which is what Marx was talking about, um, they kind of started to lay the blame on the working class. And they started to say Nazism happened because the working class was, was led astray by demagogues and sparkly things and big events and so on, which was exactly what the fucking fascists said about socialism. Round three. Who was it that argued democracy is beautiful in theory? In practice, it is a fallacy. Don't you even, that's a fascist. If you said fascist, you would be right. That is the Italian dictator, Benito Mussolini. You can read actual fascists and they were saying, you think that you're being democratic, you think you're thinking for yourself, but really you're just being led astray by a demagogue. And now you hear leftists saying that all the time. All the what time. What a sad irony. What a sad irony. That that's yeah, the I mean, it, it, this, is, this has been the trajectory. I think that a lot of this, as far as the left now goes, has to get laid at the feet of the father of the so-called new left, who is Marcuse, who said many of these things himself. He's, you know, writing and whether it's, you know, essay on liberation or one dimensional man, he's, he's writing, you know, well, advanced capitalism actually works. It allows people to, to build a better life. It delivers the goods. These are the things, more gadgets, more plastic, more this, more that, but they don't realize it's unsustainable and they're not going to get what they actually want. Um, they, they don't have a true, you know, better vision. So guess what? The working class, he doesn't go quite so far as to throw them all the way under the bus. He's not quite that, that bold, but he says something along the lines of that, you know, the working class uh, in itself 
is still the basis for the transformation of society, but the working class for itself no longer is. It's abandoned. It has become conservative and counter-revolutionary. And then he just bashes them and says, well, we've got to figure out where that energy really lies. And he says, guess what? It lies in a